This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. This year's huge international climate summit is over. Did world leaders meet the challenge of keeping global temperature rise under 1.5 degrees? If you add a long-term target, it might get us to 1.8 degrees Celsius. However, if you count the near-term actions by 2030, we're probably at 2.4 degrees Celsius. So that's a major, major gap. But there were important outcomes from the meeting. It's never enough.、Um, I think there will be a lot of people who are disappointed in some aspects of it, but good progress was made. And are voices of the global South really being heard? While Africa is on the front lines of the climate crisis, it's not on the front pages of the world's newspapers. We can change this simply by listening to the activists who are speaking up and amplifying their voices. After two weeks of negotiations, presentations, and protests in Glasgow, COP26 is a wrap. On today's show, we've invited a couple of guests to help unpack what was achieved and what wasn't at the International Climate Summit. Zhang Lian is adjunct professor at the University of California, Berkeley, focused on China's energy and climate policy. Albert Chung is head of global analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. We jumped right in to discuss how much progress was really made this year. I feel very positive about the outcomes from Glasgow.、Uh, it's never enough.、Um, I think there will be a lot of people who are disappointed in some aspects of it, but good progress was made. I would say, if you zoom out a little bit, we now have commitments that could potentially get us on a track towards 1.7, 1.8 degrees Celsius of, of global warming at the most optimistic end of the estimates. If all of the pledges are, are delivered on time and in full,、um, including the long-range ones out to 2050 and 2060. And that's that's not enough to get to 1.5, but it is a, a whole lot better than we were a couple of years ago. I'm、um, a little bit better than we were two weeks ago, and I think something that should not be taken lightly because that, that is a lot of work that's gone into those negotiations to make that happen. And importantly, one key provision that says that we're all going to come back in a year's time and do it again, and look at our commitments again, and see if we can raise ambition again next year towards 1.5. I think that gives some hope that we can get an even better outcome in the next 12 months. Right, the countries will be meeting in Egypt next year rather than waiting for five years, shortening those、uh, check-in timeframes.、Uh, Zhang Lin, what do you think as the big takeaway, the outcome from Glasgow? Well, I think COP twenty-six made significant progress towards addressing the urgency of climate change. However, there's still a major gap left to fill, as Albert recognized already. If you add a long-term target, it might get us to one point eight. Degree Celsius. However, if you count the near-term actions by 2030, we're probably at 2.4 degrees Celsius. So that's a major, major gap. However, the, the COP26 does recognize the need for ambitious action in the next decades. So we're not only looking at long-term target towards 2050, 2060, etc., but rather we have to cut emission by almost by half by 2030. I think that's. Extremely、uh, important advance, and also、uh, I think COP26 enhanced our goal to hold down to 1.5 degrees instead of a weaker language in the Paris Agreement. I think that's really important and recognize what science tells us to do. That's the minimum threshold we have to hold to avoid、uh, sort of disastrous consequences of climate change. Uh, uh, just another sort of signal to that is, even though there was a last-minute so-called watering down of the language on coal power, but nonetheless, this is the beginning of the end of coal power. 
Right. And we'll, we'll get into that. I'd, I'd like to play two clips from the conference. First, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees is a death sentence for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, for the people of the Maldives, for the people of Dominica and Fiji, for the people of Kenya and Mozambique, and yes, for the people of Samoa and Barbados. We do not want that dreaded death sentence. And we've come here today to say, try harder, try harder. And here's Ugandan activist Vanessa Nakate. We'll have a longer conversation with her later in this episode. I hope you can appreciate that where I live, a two-degree world means that a billion people will be affected by extreme heat stress. In a two-degree Celsius world, some places in the global south will regularly reach a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees Celsius. At that temperature, the human body cannot cool itself by sweating. At that temperature, even healthy people sitting in the shed will die within six hours. So really powerful human statements of what's really at stake, you know, 1.5 or 2 degrees are not some abstract numbers. So Albert, despite progress being made, what was it like there to be with so much at stake and hearing statements like those? These conferences of the parties, as they're called, these COPs, are really unlike any other conferences that, you know, that I for one attend. You know, normally um, we're doing industry gatherings, thinking about how to deploy clean energy, how to deploy electric vehicles and hydrogen. At COP, it is, it is a, a, a rainbow. Um, it is an incredibly diverse um, place to go where you have people from every country, all demographics, all ages, civic society, activists, NGOs, and, and business, of course. And it is, for better or for worse, this incredible show and, and circus where the spotlight is on the global climate community just for those two weeks. And first of all, you, you cannot but feel energized and feel an incredible sense of purpose when you're there. Um, but secondly, I think that that theater, those incredibly powerful speeches that, that you've just that we've just heard, are a really important part of the process. Um, because um, the way that the Paris Agreement is structured, the, the way that these talks are structured, is through um, this process of kind of moral pressure on countries to do the right thing. So, you know, I'm glad I was able to spend a couple of days there. It was a great privilege to be there. And I, th I think the um, that powerful words really do matter because that's what motivates leaders. They don't want to be seen as the, the bad guy in the room. They don't want to go back to their country and, and face their, their people having been the bad guy in the room. So I, um, I, I think those words really, really matter and really resonate. Yeah, I've been in, in place at, at those where like, you know, someone from an island nation uh, speaks and it's just, you know, you could hear a pin drop and just because of the, the moral voice that's being heard. And uh, some people would say that that's really what, what changed this time was the presence and profile of people like Vanessa Nakate and other youth who are really calling, and Greta, of course, really calling on the boomers and the people in power and, you know, shaming them in some cases. Zhang Ling, how did that hit you? You know, these numbers matter. How do those statements or other cries from help for help from Glasgow land with you personally? Well, I think that made it real for scientists like me to understand the consequences that not uh, on a global average mean temperature, but rather on people's livelihood. 
So that's an extremely, extremely powerful motivating factor. Uh, and that's why I think IPCC uh, new report made a very strong directional signal that we have to go towards 1.5 degree Celsius goal. And that goal has been strengthened. Our understanding of consequence of climate change uh, has been strengthened as well. Albert, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was host of the Glasgow summit. He previously mocked eco-doomsters in some of his newspaper columns, but he's changed his tune, which he tends to do. Uh, but after the conference, he said it was the death knell for coal. You know, as, as our uh, resident Brit here, how do you see Johnson's handling of, of the conference? First of all, um, if any politician who has previously mocked climate change wants to change their position, I'm all for it. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't have pre previously supported what he was saying, but now now, now I do. Look, the, the UK government had several really marquee goals for, for COP. One of them was to keep 1.5 alive. One of them was around coal and actually to to accelerate the phase out of coal. And so I think two, two key things happened during COP. In the first week, we had this global agreement on coal, um, which was to to accelerate the phase out of coal. I would say, personally, I thought that was um, a slightly disappointing agreement because it didn't actually include most of the major coal users um, out there like the US and China and India. But it did include a few European uh, nations which hadn't previously made such a, um, such a pledge. So that was a good step forward. And then, of course, the final text does have this, this language that says, we all agree to accelerate the phase down of coal. And I think, as we've all heard now, that language had previously said a phase out of coal. And India and China stepped in to say, we don't like phase out. Can we please replace that with phase down, which implies some continuing role for coal, which, as we all know, is really not compatible with, with 1.5 degrees. And that was a source of major disappointment to Alok Sharma, the COP president. And you could see on his face that he was incredibly disappointed. Yeah, um, he cried by yeah, that. He, he teared. Yeah, yeah, and so I think I think for the prime ministers to say it's the, the death knell for coal, I think the UK government was always going to trumpet the achievements of COP, and I think this is what we're seeing now is maybe overselling a little bit what's been achieved. Jiangling, Xi Jinping did not attend the Glasgow conference, but the U.S. and China announced a surprise bilateral agreement to work together on moving away from fossil fuels and stabilizing the climate that supports our economy and lifestyles. Will that result in meaningful emissions? We know that as we record this, President Xi and President Biden are talking this evening, um, but tell us about that bilateral agreement. Well, I think the fact that U.S. and China made such a surprise announcement during COP under the challenging state of U.S.-China relationship, it's a story in itself, right? It shows that both countries recognize the threat of climate change to the world and to their own economies and recognize the urgency to take so-called enhanced action, not just business as usual. So I think that means that both teams are working really, really hard to find common ground and make tensions on multiple front. I think that's a very hopeful sign. As you remember, it was the agreement between China and US back in 2014 that laid the foundation for Paris. So obviously, 2021 is not 2014. We are in a very different world. But the common theme, both uh, Special Envoy uh, Kerry and Xie made it clearly that climate change is a common interest for both countries. And they're committed to 
take a much greater enhanced action in the next decades. Both words are key: enhanced action and next decade. I think that's a new focus. Right. Seems like there's so much uh, tension right now between the U.S. and China over China's military expansion in the South China Sea, forced labor camps in Xinjiang, trade tensions, the suppression of civil rights in Hong Kong. It's a long list, but climate might actually be an area, Zhang Lin, where the two countries can actually like this could be. Yeah, that place where they really find common cause. I do agree. I think there's a long list in that joint declaration on areas both U.S. and China would work together. Albert,、uh, just two days before the summit began, China declined to speed up its pledge to reach peak carbon by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. That's a decade later than most other countries. China would say because they've they started industrializing later.、Um, how much of a shadow did that cast over the whole meeting? For me, not not so much of a shadow actually,、um, and、uh, perhaps I'm alone in this. But I was not expecting China to come forward with a big new pledge to raise its ambition、um, before COP.、Um, it had only really put in place these these two commitments to, to peak emissions before 2030 and reach net zero by 2060.、Um, those commitments are about a year old, and I I actually would have been quite surprised to see some you know substantial new commitment there. So I think. I would say that、uh, I think overall, you know, China's participation in COP was kind of,、uh, in the end, marked by this high point, as as Jiang has mentioned, with the with the U.S. collaboration. And I think that's going to be the thing that they've taken away from it and said, "This is our new kind of, you know, f- flagship achievement that we're going to take forward." Right. They didn't really have much of a presence at the meeting. She wasn't there. They didn't have a exhibition in the in the main hall where all the countries are kind of showcasing their presences. But they do have this. U.S.-China bilateral deal, and you know, at the end of the day, U.S. and China are what about forty percent of emissions, top two emitters. They they can do a lot.、Uh, just those two,、uh, Jiang Lin. One of the big critiques of the UN process is that countries announce lofty goals without specific plans or milestones along the way, as you've kind of noted.、Uh, China did recently release its long-awaited plan for reaching peak carbon emissions by 2030. That's not gotten a lot of attention. What does it say? You know, does that plan provide confidence that China? Will hit its goal. Are we seeing the operational details to say, okay, this is real? Great. Thanks for bringing this up. I think it's an extremely important development domestically within China. As Albert said, the carbon neutrality goal is only one year old. So the entire country is mobilized to plan and draft detailed regulations how this can be done.、Uh, this is a rather unprecedented effort. Um, for a still growing emerging economy, to put together a carbon neutrality plan in contrast to OECD countries that our ambition has peaked already, we're we're just going down. We need to go down faster. So to change the direction、uh, for reaching the peaking by 2030, then getting down to zero, essentially in 30 years, it's pretty tall order, I would say. So everyone, as Albert alluded to already, are not anticipating a major target revision, but rather, what are the plans are being put in place? So in China, it's called a one plus n plans, with the number one are the document issued by the Party Central Committee and the State Council on the guidance how to reach carbon peaking and carbon neutrality, which gives. Fair amount of detail, including、uh, a few more high-level target. For example, including 80% non-fossil energy goal by 2060. That's lined up with the carbon neutrality、um, pledge. 
then the state council uh, issued its own implementation plan on reaching carbon um, peaking and, and, and in 10 major areas, uh, in different sector of economy. So there are a lot more details that shed light, light on how China would go implementing different regulations, policies, and incentives to get different sector economy to contribute to the peaking and then reaching carbon neutrality. So there are a lot more new details in that document. You're listening to a Climate One conversation taking stock of COP26 in Glasgow. Coming up, addressing climate justice through money for loss and damage. Ultimately, developing countries hold the rich countries responsible for causing climate change, and rightly so, for bringing climate change upon them. And, you know, we're already seeing the droughts, the storms, the wildfires, all of that affecting the poorest countries, which didn't cause the problem. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about what was and wasn't accomplished at COP26 in Glasgow with John Lin, adjunct professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and Albert Chung, head of global analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance in London. During the climate summit, the Washington Post published a big investigation showing that a lot of countries' claims of carbon reductions are built on faulty numbers. I asked Albert Chung how troubling this is. Absolutely, absolutely is key. And especially in this decade, in the next few years between now and 2030, where we need to see delivery on the pledges that have been made. That's really the most important thing. So one, I think one good thing that's come out of Glasgow is actually some progress on this issue of transparency, where, you know, it really comes down to, you know, the format of the data that's being submitted by each country and so on and so forth to make sure that countries are following the same you know, rules and standards and guidelines of how they submit data. Um, and, you know, progress was made there. Some, you know, some guidelines were laid down there. So I think that will will definitely help. But, you know, certainly what we need is world leaders to go back to their desks this week and start implementing policies to, to deliver on, on the pledges that they've made. Another big pledge was the uh, Paris Agreement promised $100 billion a year in financial support for less developed countries, but the full amount of what was promised by 2020 still has not been delivered. It's been somewhere around $80 billion a year rather than $100 billion. Albert, what progress was made on this front? So uh, this may not really sound like progress, but in the final text of the of the pact, developed countries uh, said that they noted with regret the failure um, to reach the $100 billion mark by 2020. That is meaningful in, in UN speak. Um, that, is a, that is an important thing to say, is to, to note that with regret. And, you know, it, sound, it sounds like now the pledges add up to $100 billion by 2023. So we will get there three years late. Um, which is regrettable, but I think I think that is good progress. Now, I think that is not going to be the end of that story because this whole issue of climate justice is not going away anytime soon. So we heard India call for a trillion dollars of climate finance, um, sort of slightly upping the stakes there. And we've also heard calls for much more of that money to go towards adaptation in particular. So right now there's I think the total is about $80 billion. I think only a quarter of that goes towards adaptation to, to help developing countries actually prepare for you know the very real impacts of climate change. And the UN Secretary General actually said, you know, Antonio Guterres said that he would like half of climate finance to go towards adaptation. Now that wasn't actually agreed, so that you know that that's not not done. But what there what was agreed was a pledge 
to at least double adaptation funding by 2025. So I think that's really important progress and progress that developing countries would welcome. There was also lots of talk about loss and damage. This year, there was a real push by the most affected peoples and areas for additional loss and damage payments. The idea that if rich countries or actions are damaging poor countries, the ones emitting the most should have to pay for the harm. Albert, loss and damage. This is it's a hugely contentious issue and, um, again, centered on this, the question of climate justice because ultimately developing countries hold the rich countries responsible for causing climate change and rightly so for bringing climate change upon them and you know we're already seeing the droughts the storms the wildfires all of that affecting the poorest countries which didn't cause the problem so the idea of loss and damage was to to set up a fund specifically to pay for the damage caused and that was not you know i don't think that was even close to being agreed in in glasgow but what the pact does is it acknowledges the issue you know recognizes that there is loss and damage being caused and essentially opens a dialogue to explore further how this could be addressed. The issue to me is, is fairly obvious is that developed countries, rich countries have zero interest in accepting liability for for something for something that could run into the trillions because you know this is this could be the biggest damages case the world has ever seen, right? Um so I think this is it's, this is going to continue to be contentious for I think for many cops to come. Yeah, all sorts of, right, if we admit to it, then think of all the legal liability, et cetera, the corporations, countries, et cetera. Jianglin, your thoughts on kind of this this framing, you know, this this issue of kind of a moral responsibility, really, for what, um, you know, if this happened between individuals or or states or counties or corporations, right, there'd, there'd be lawsuits. <laughs> yes, I think as I uh, mentioned earlier, I think even for a UN document to recognize this clause, the phrasing is it significant enough. Uh, it is very contentious issue. Uh, there's no agreement uh, or consensus on it yet. However, it is recognized in text, which is a meaningful first step. Just looking back on even the easier question of the $100 billion funding for developing economy in, in, in comparison to the loss and damage potentials, uh, that's a really uh, important thing to recognize. Developing economies have been pushing for this for a long, long time. This was a great uh, pun uh, at the Copenhagen uh, in uh, 2009. So that's 11, 12 years going. We're not going to get there until 2023. So it is a hugely disappointing outcome for developing economy pushing for uh, faster action. Justice, really. Uh, yeah. So, but also it suggests to me that there's a greater need to be met. This doubling of adaptation fund is, is, is essential progress because for people in Maldives, it doesn't matter if you want to build a solar panel on their island or not. They need to actually address rising sea level, potentially wiping out their homeland. So adaptation is is a real and urgent need. We see that here in California as well, with you know growing wildfires, uh, less uh, rainfalls and drought, etc. So it is not just somehow we can f- fix this problem. We have to start to get used to how do we live with a changing world. 
Albert, oil prices are the highest in seven years and heading toward $100 a barrel, according to some projections. We've seen headlines about potential global energy shortages this winter. Rising energy prices are making politicians nervous about facing angry drivers and voters. Did that strengthen the hand of fossil fuel companies and countries at the conference? Talk about the energy context in which this climate conversation is happening. I actually don't think that the current um, energy crunch that's being experienced around the world had such a major bearing in the end on on the discussions at at COP. Rightly, I think that the focus was much more on the long-term ambitions that we should be setting to reduce emissions. Um, I think that it was right to worry that there might be some sort of backlash to say, oh, we can't move off fossil fuels so quickly, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't detect that at all in the discussions. And I, I think that's correct because ultimately... My own view is that you know we're seeing volatility in the market because you have a, you know, a mismatch between supply and demand of fossil fuels, of you know liquids and gases that, that we need to run the economy as it is today. And actually, that can happen again and again on the road to net zero between now and 2050. That is likely to swing you know both ways. There'll be oversupply or, or undersupply at different times, and we're going to keep seeing these crunches. So I think the volatility is just going to be a part of the picture, and we're all going to have to get used to it. So in a way, I'm I'm quite glad that we didn't allow that to overshadow you know this incredibly important conference because the you know these shocks are going to happen and you know they're not necessarily linked to the energy transition let me turn that around for you albert and say what signals do you see coming out of glasgow that will impact energy and capital markets you just said that you know energy markets really didn't affect glasgow it was focused on long term how does glasgow affect the energy markets and where money is going and how energy is used well, I mean, if we want to talk about money, I think maybe a good place to start is actually the um, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, um, GFANS for short. It's a slightly heavy acronym. But this was this agreement set up by Mark Carney and, and Mike Bloomberg, who, who's my ultimate boss, actually, between uh, hundreds of financial institutions representing $130 trillion in assets to move towards net zero. And I think that was um, quite a useful quite a useful announcement because it essentially says all of these financial institutions, yeah, they don't have their plans in place right now. Many of them are still investing in fossil fuels, um, but they're setting a direction. And that direction allows us to then hold them accountable. So in the next two, five years, we can look back and say, hey, you signed this thing. What have you actually done? In a similar way that we're, we're starting to hold countries accountable for their NDCs. So I do think that is going to help focus the minds of the finance industry executives on how do we get capital into clean energy and how do we get get it out of fossil, maybe not overnight, but certainly over the next few years. So does that mean we need to wait for governments? Are markets now kind of, you know, moving in a direction uh, that will get to these goals? There's definitely a prevailing sense that business is ahead of government at the moment in in the whole climate discussion. Um, I'll give you one example. We worked um, closely with the UK government actually to release a report on zero emission vehicles last Wednesday at at Transport Day at COP. And the UK government, the the COP26 presidency, put together this declaration of countries and automakers, as well as subnational governments, to work towards the phase out of, of polluting vehicles. And we ran the analysis you know, with them on, on this pledge and essentially found that 20% of the global car market is now covered by national targets to phase out internal combustion engines. 20%, not enough, but good progress. 30% of the world's car market is covered by automakers' pledges to phase out um, internal combustion engines. So that's just one example of where 
business is moving faster than policies. And I think you'll see other examples in, in other sectors as well. What about the liability of fossil fuel and big ag and chemical companies? You know, it's not all on countries. Exxon knew for decades that they were causing a global harm. Albert, what about the corporate liability? Those are really challenging questions to address. And I may be in a, in a minority among among the you know your listeners and all that, but um, I think that what we what we really need to do if we want to solve the climate issue is we we need to have a big tent and we need to engage with these companies and actually make them do the right thing going forward. I personally am not that interested in the liability of what they've done in the past. We you know it seems like we now know that they hid certain things. We know that they've been lobbying for for the wrong side for for a long time. Um, but what we need is we need to change policy. We need to change the market rules so that they can't do that anymore, so that they can't invest in the wrong things and so that they can they can go on the low carbon transition along with the rest of us because I'm not sh- I'm not convinced that um, the courts are going to be the path to uh, the path to kind of climate safe pathways. Yeah, that's been a hang up in the past. There's been U.S. legislation introduced on a carbon price, but the sort of a liability shield for fossil fuel industries was part of it that was taken out. That's been a real uh, source of contention, something modeled along what, what happened with tobacco. We'll give you some money. You can't sue us for what happened in the past. Zhang Li, let's talk about the Global Methane Pledge. That was aimed at reducing emissions of short-lived but potent greenhouse gases by 30% by 2030. How important is this pledge? And you know how much of the low hanging fruit um, that just gives political cover for not addressing the thornier issues. I think the Global Methane Pledge, potentially the single most uh, accomplishment, a uh, significant accomplishment uh, during COP26, because we know that uh, methane is a highly potent entrapping heat, uh, potentially 80 times more uh, uh, heat than CO2 uh, uh, traps in the short term. So if we need to deal with controlling temperature rise within the next decade, reducing methane is the best bet we have. By you know, by some estimates, the pledge of a 30% reduction in uh, global methane emissions could in itself shave off 0.2 degrees Celsius in terms of warming by about 2040 or so. So that's actually highly significant. And second, that most of the reduction in methane can be done cost effectively especially in the oil and gas industries. And there's like growing consensus, even among stakeholders in industry, that's a missed opportunity in the past. So I think it's highly, highly uh, significant. Right. And that seems to be one area where industry is, you know, quite highly aligned, uh, you know, because methane, there's a lot of basically waste, you know, and it's to get that to market. You can actually, uh, it's, you know, usable energy. Uh, Albert, Boris Johnson, who we talked about, chief of the conference, said he wanted to make progress on cars, coal, cash, and trees. We talked a little bit about coal. You know, how, how do you think that played out? On trees, we had this deforestation uh, agreement that was, um, I forget the number of countries, maybe 100 countries covering 85% of the world's forests, um, agreeing to stop deforestation by 2030. And that is really quite, quite meaningful. So maybe if you look across, you know, coal, cars, cash, and trees, you know, pe- perhaps actually the trees one is is maybe the one with the with the best, you know, new agreement. Of course, it has to be delivered, and actually we've seen pledges like that made before that were not delivered. But um, maybe trees is the most um, the, the one that made the most progress. Yeah, I, I totally agree uh, with, with Albert on the tree topic. I think this is uh, highly significant because this time there's a real money pledge 
nearly $20 billion pledged to preserving uh, a forest uh, or stopping deforestation by 2030. So there's a clear end goal there. And by my own calculation, that's slightly just under uh, 10% of global emissions. So that's a big number, right? And uh, so getting that down by 2030, also meeting our new focus on the next decade. What do we can do now instead of the future? This was the first uh, conference of parties or COP where the U.S. is back, re-engaged. U.S. rejoined the Paris Climate uh, Summit. The Biden administration is back after the U.S. been absent uh, for four years. How credible are U.S. climate efforts when it spends more than a year on defense rather than kind of on offense talking about uh, Biden's 10-year plan? There was a lot of defense and, you know, Biden kind of showed up empty-handed because the U.S. didn't pass by the time he got there the infrastructure bill, the, the Build Back Better plan. Albert, you want to take that? You know, U.S. leadership, was it really, was it present? Greg, last time we spoke, um, last time I was on this show, I think I, I said that the U.S. was a bit less credible than, uh, than I would have liked. But look, the U.S. showed up for COP26, dozens of political leaders. John Kerry worked incredibly hard for the two weeks that he was there, you know, the whole time. And I think it did show that the U.S. is back, that it wants to engage and it wants to lead. And like many other countries, the U.S. showed up having already made the pledges, really. You know, there were not that many new pledges made at Glasgow. So the U.S. had already set forth its plans, you know, to reduce emissions by, by 50% or more than 50% by 2030, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't like Biden was completely empty-handed. Um, he did deliver on, on the, at least the infrastructure bill during COP26. That, that is now done, but you know, not yet on the uh, the economic spending bill, which would really have been a big boost for clean energy. So I would, you know, I'd give the U.S. a qualified, you know, maybe a th- you know three or four stars out of five for for you know what they did on the day in 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 COP. Given the constraints that um, that the administration faces back home, you know, the U.S. wasn't able to sign the coal declaration, wasn't able to sign the electric vehicles declaration because those are not realistic political prospects to to get agreed back home. Right. And I want to ask you kind of like how change happens, because looking at at climate Twitter uh, during the conference, there were a lot of people, young people, particularly who were really disappointed, angry, sad. We need to you know, talk about revolution. We They really need to shake up the system because they think the establishment is not going to deliver the reductions uh, needed and that there's going to be more political pressure, more. Uh, we saw this, some of that during the conference of parties, Greta saying this is all blah, 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 some youth walking out, et cetera. Uh, so Albert, having been there, what your sense of like, you know, is the establishment, the elites going to get this job done or is there going to be more, you know, civil disobedience, uh, you know, as the world gets hotter, desperate people take more desperate measures? I don't think we are on track for 1.5 degrees. Um, so I think it's right that um, that people are angry about that. And you're going to have the, the, the campaigners and, and the activists and the NGOs who essentially pan the Glasgow Pact and say, it's greenwash, it's just blah, 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 it's just words. But you have to remember, I mean, words are all the negotiators have in that conference room. You know, what you're trying to do is get 200 countries to agree on, on, on a text and, and the text is the, is the path forward. You know, they're not in there planting trees, they're in there crafting words. And you know what those words say, if you read it, is let's come back next year and keep trying harder. So I think it's good to be angry. I think that anger helps. 
Um, but um, I think to to say that you know these people aren't trying or aren't doing enough, I think you know the, they're working hard, and I think this is the right system and the, the right process to try and get to a better outcome. I think the young people are right uh, to be disappointed, uh, to be frustrated. I think bring the pressure on, and that's what's get it going, right? It's so it's a democracy, right? We need our citizens to be engaged to push for what we hope for. So don't let the pressure drop. But also broadly speaking, I think UN is only one avenue of change. Uh, it's an important one, but it's only one. It takes multiple sources of change to make it happen, including everyday activities each citizen can take on, but also in your own local jurisdictions, industries as well. So I think that we need to start mobilizing different sectors of the society to all work on this common goal. Uh, just hoping for one UN document to solve our problem is probably not realistic and cannot be counted on. That was Zhang Lin, an adjunct professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and Albert Chung, head of global analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, weighing in on what did and didn't get accomplished at COP26. This is Climate One. Coming up, African climate activist Vanessa Nakate says we will only be able to have climate justice if everyone is involved. I know and believe that every activist has a story to tell and every story has a solution to give and every solution has a life to change. That's up next when Climate One continues. Vanessa Nakate is a Ugandan climate justice activist. Inspired by Greta Thunberg, Vanessa began a solitary strike for bolder climate action in 2019. Vanessa founded the Youth for Future Africa and the Africa-based Rise Up movement. Her advocacy recently landed her on the cover of Time magazine. She begins her new book, A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis, with the story of a press conference at the World Economic Forum in Davos. In January 2020, I got an invitation uh, from the Arctic Base Camp and uh, it was to go to Davos. And at that same time, uh, the World Economic Forum was happening. And I remember getting in Davos and my very first experience of Davos was how extremely cold it was <laughs> and how my hands really hurt because I didn't have any gloves on. And then I got this invitation to speak at a press conference with other activists from Europe. And I was just so happy about this invitation and excited because I've been at a press conference before and I always know uh, they always have quite a number of journalists and it's always a good place or an opportunity or a platform to really talk about the experiences of very many people, especially uh, with the climate crisis. I remember one of the things that I really emphasized at the press conference was, you know, the importance of listening to every activist from every part of the world. So later on, I see a picture and then an article. And I realized that my name is not in the article. And my face is not in the picture because it had been cropped out. 
at that moment when I saw that, I just wanted to ask why I had been cropped out because I knew that I had been cropped out. And uh, when I asked why, there's just a lot of support that really came in uh, from different people from different parts of the world. And to me, it was a representation of the continuous erasure of activists who are on the front lines of the climate crisis. And were you were the only person of color, the only black person in the photograph? Yes, I was. And how did you cycle through your feelings from being hurt on an individual level, anger? What did you feel like when you realized you were cropped out? Frustrated heartbroken and really hurt and also disappointed because like I've said uh, one of the things that I really emphasized was the importance of listening to every activist and you know how we will be able to have climate justice only if everyone is involved. I know and believe that every activist has a story to tell and every story has a solution to give and every solution has a life to change. So when I saw this, it was very hurtful, a very hurtful experience. And uh, it's something that when, you know, someone asks me about it, it's still a place that takes me back to those experiences. Yeah, I worked at the AP and I'm embarrassed that the AP was the organization that, that cropped you out. You tweeted uh, to the AP, you didn't just erase a photo, you erased a continent, quite powerful. And in, in his analysis of the photo, Dr. Robert Bullard, who's known as the father of environmental justice in the United States, said that, quote, climate activism among youth is perceived by larger society as a white thing. The uncropped photo didn't fit this model, end quote. How do we get that model to change? Well, uh, I think it really starts from people understanding the urgency of the climate crisis and people understanding that, you know, communities or people at the front lines of climate change did not cause the climate crisis. For example, historically, Africa is responsible for only 3% of global emissions, and yet Africans are already suffering some of the most brutal impacts fueled by the climate crisis. We've seen the occurrence of droughts, the occurrence of floods, the occurrence of landslides, cyclones in different parts of Africa, locust evasions, and these have really affected the access to water for many communities, availability of food for many communities, education of many children, and, you know, the hopes and dreams and futures of so many children being destroyed as these disasters escalate. So, People need to understand that while Africa is on the front lines of the climate crisis, it's not on the front pages of the world's newspapers. And I think the other way that, you know, we can change this, it's simply by listening to the activists who are speaking up, platforming their voices and amplifying their voices. People also need to know that we may be facing the same storm, but we are definitely in different boats. So as some people are in way stronger boats, other people are in more weaker boats. Some people's boats are already sinking and they've already lost everything. Some people's boats are heading to that same you know, direction of destruction when people understand that 
that is, you know, the horrible reality of the climate crisis, that those on the front lines, those who find themselves in much weaker boats did not cause the climate crisis, then it would be easier for people to pay attention to what the activists from Africa or the global south in general are talking about when they are demanding for climate justice. Yeah, it's deeply um, unjust that the people who caused at least are feeling it first and worst. Uh, you've organized climate strikes in Kampala, the capital of Uganda, where you grew up, and as well as trying to get your voice heard at international summits like Davos and Glasgow. How is your message different when you're speaking in Africa or in Europe? Yeah, when it comes to the people in Uganda, especially the schools um, that we go to to do like uh, education about climate issues, this is mostly about creating awareness and, you know, awakening people to their connection to nature. Many people don't know about the realities of climate change. However, people do see the floods. People do see the, the droughts because some of these things are talked about on the news uh, when they happen. People see the occurrence of landslides. So I think that, you know, for people who are on the front lines, the most important thing to do is to give as much education as possible, to communicate the crisis and create as much awareness as possible. Because the more people know, the more people will want to come together and work together and demand for climate justice. But when I come to Europe, I'm not here to create awareness of climate issues because the corporations know that their actions are harming the planet. Leaders know that when they take specific decisions, they're going to harm the planet. So it's a place of saying your actions, the more you're funding the digging up of fossil fuels um, in your countries, in our countries, the more people are losing their farms, the more people are losing their homes, the more people are losing their businesses because of your continuous actions, because of your continuous environmental destruction, Many people's uh, livelihoods are being destroyed because what happens in Europe doesn't end in Europe. Just prior to COP26, you gave a keynote speech at the Youth for Climate event in Milan. I'd like to play a bit of that speech. For many of us, reducing and avoiding is no longer enough. You cannot adapt to lost cultures. You cannot adapt to lost traditions. You cannot adapt to lost history. You cannot adapt to starvation. It's time for our leaders to stop talking and start acting. It's time to count the real costs and it's time for the polluters to pay. It's time to keep the promises. No more empty promises, no more empty summits, no more empty conferences. It's time to show us the money it's time, it's time, it's time. And don't forget to listen to the most affected people and areas. Thank you. That was quite a powerful moment there. Who do you think most needs to hear your message? And are, is, is it breaking through to people in power? The people who really 
need to listen to my message and to my demands. I think it is really the people in power, uh, the people who are continuing to construct our pipelines, who are continuing to frack gas, who are continuing to open coal uh, power plants while promising us net zero by 2040, by 2050 or by 2030. They are the people who really need to listen, you know, to my message, but not just my message, the message that has been spoken by a number of activists in this generation, activists who have been there, you know, way before we started activism. That is the message that we want the leaders to listen to and uh, to give action, to give justice, justice that has people at its center. We want the climate justice to have people at the center of the decisions of the leaders. And of course, um, one of the things that I really emphasized in that speech was loss and damage. Leaders must understand that loss and damage is here with us right now. They have to acknowledge that. They have to put loss and damage on their agenda and they have to give the money for communities that are already experiencing loss and damage. And this money, we want it in grants and not in form of loans. Yeah, it's kind of very simple concept. If someone's uh, pollution or water, you know, sewage runs onto their neighbor's property, they would be expected to pay and clean it up, and that's what's happening on a on a on a global scale. And the people who are responsible are not not paying for that. Recently, uh, Royal Dutch Shell CEO Ben Van Buren was spoke at a conference uh, before Glasgow, and activist Lauren McDonald got up and really, you know shouted at him in a way that gained a lot of attention. Let's hear that clip now. So if you're, if you're going to sit here and say you care about climate action, why are you currently appealing the recent court ruling that Shell must decrease its emissions by 45% by 2030? I seriously do not understand what goes on in your mind to sit there and say, I'm trying to do better. But you're appealing. You're appealing against being legally binded to climate action. So, yeah, my question is a yes or no question. Will you repeal this if you care? Will you repeal this? Repeal the appeal, what do you mean? Or yeah. But, again, you gave some context, which, by the way... I'm going to take that as a no. <laughs> so I'm just going to say, no, I no, hope... No, excuse me. I hope that you, that you know that we will never forget what you have done and what Cher has done. I hope you know that as the climate crisis gets more and more deadly, you will be to blame. And I will not be sharing this podium with you anymore. I'm curious what you thought about that moment where an act, a youth activist really was on stage, on the TED stage with the Shell CEO and really spoke quite directly and unexpectedly and forcefully to him. I think it's really powerful and inspiring when youth activists do that and uh, they speak truth to power in front of leaders, in front of presidents or vice presidents of, you know, corporations like Shell. And I also think that it really tells a lot when, you know, people who are destroying the environment, people who are destroying the planet, you know, are the same people who are given spaces to discuss our future. You know, it's kind of 
contradictory, you know, the same person who is fueling the climate crisis to be invited, you know, to talk um, about climate, you know, the future of uh, climate solutions and all that. So I think that it's really powerful when youth activists uh, speak truth to power and demand for accountability when leaders or when uh, oil giants are given spaces that, are, that they are not supposed to be given to. How did you learn about climate change, first in boarding school and then on your own? In boarding school, climate change is usually one of the topics in geography class. And um, I remember learning about it as every student, because um, when you ask any student, either in primary school or in secondary school, what climate change is, uh, they will tell you this is uh, the, the average change in weather conditions over a long period of time. But no one will tell you that climate change means droughts, means floods. Uh, the time I got to start to understand the urgency of the climate crisis, it was in 2018, uh, towards the end of 2018. And it was through my own personal reading and realizing how urgent of a problem it was and how it was more than, you know, that definition that we all knew, that definition that every student knows, that it was something that was impacting the lives of the people right now, something that was, you know, threatening the livelihoods of very many communities right now. And it's really in that period that I decided I would do something about, you know, the climate crisis. And after being inspired uh, by the climate strikes which were started by Greta, I decided that it would really be a very powerful way to demand for climate justice and also create awareness. I get chills hearing <laughs> hearing you talk of, talk about that. Uh, you're the eldest of five kids yeah. growing up in, in Kampala. Share the moment when you told your mom you were going to a climate strike. Take us to that moment. Yeah, uh, it was actually a Saturday. My very first climate strike was on a Sunday because I... Uh, I took time before studying the climate strikes as, as I was really scared to go to the streets. And the time when I felt like, you know, that feeling of, you know, you've taken so much time and that feeling of urgency that a lot of time has been wasted. And then I decide to, you know, to say to myself that I'm going to do this climate strike. And I realized that it's Saturday and Friday is gone. And then I'm like, no, I can still study it on a Sunday and then catch up with everyone else every Friday. <laughs> so on Saturday, uh, I told my siblings and cousins about it and uh, they were really excited. And uh, when we were making the, the signs, you know, that's when uh, my mom comes and asks us what we are doing. And we tell her that we were writing, you know, uh, on the climate signs and we were going to do a climate strike. Uh, she didn't understand what I meant by the climate strike when I told her, but then I explained uh, what it really meant. And uh, she was kind of, you know, you know, worried and uh, feeling nervous about us going to the street. But then I told her that we would be safe and she wouldn't have to worry about that. So we went for the climate strike and we did uh, the strike in four different locations because, again, like I felt that urgency that I should have spoken up way earlier. So I just wanted that um, we do this in like 
as many locations as possible that we can reach so that uh, we can create, you know, lots of awareness about the climate issues in just uh, one day. Neat. Yeah. And then your sister, Claire, said you were brave and Greta retweeted your photos and you're off and on your way. But it's, you know, being a young female activist is more dangerous in Uganda than in Sweden. So you also had to overcome sexism in your upbringing at the, at the boarding school you attended. So how were you taught that young women were supposed to behave and how do you still need to counter Ugandan gendered ideas? Well, uh, by the time when I started the climate strikes, I was just about to graduate. And uh, it's like society has a specific plan on, you know, what, on how your life should be, uh, especially after school. I remember uh, my graduation party that was organized by my parents. There were some speeches, especially from relatives, you know, saying that, you know, thank you for this uh, big celebration and uh, we can't wait for the next celebration. And that was my wedding. So there is always that pressure on your graduate. I think every every girl feels it. There is always that pressure on your graduation party that there is a demand that um, everyone can't wait, you know, to celebrate when you get married or something, you know, like that. And <laughs> I remember my dad saying that, um, you know, my I think my, my parents spoke last. I remember my dad saying that um, you don't have to, you know, to feel like to feel like you're in a rush. <laughs> yeah, that's what he told me. And he said, uh, you can do what everyone is saying whenever you want. It's not oh. that you have. Yeah. So oh, yeah, my, my dad, yeah. Yeah, but dad is really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds he sounds really special, yeah. Yeah. You know, and but you know, in in Uganda, families have to pave for their kids to go to school. The idea of skipping school for a climate strike could be seen as betrayal of the whole family. Was right. that ever an issue? Well, the time when I started the climate strikes, I wasn't going to school anymore because I was just waiting for my graduation. Uh, but this is, you know, this is uh, something that, you know, is not. I'm trying to find words, uh, how to explain it, but it's something that many students would face in Uganda because there is that, you know, feeling of, you know, being grow, growing up, being told education is the key to success and knowing that you have to finish school and also knowing how much hard work your parents really put in in ensuring that uh, you stay in school and all that. So students have like this respect for their parents and also uh, for the for their opportunity to be in school. So it's not that they will easily walk out of school and also they could face that the, the schools can have like security personnel. So you can't just walk out. You could be suspended if you forcefully do it or you could even be expelled. And uh, in many cases, you, your parents may not get a refund of uh, some of the money that they have already spent. And also many students are in boarding school. So again, it's really impossible for students to walk out of school, usually boarding school. You get out maybe when you're going back home for holidays or when you're going for a school trip. And then the other thing um, is the issue of access to funds. Usually students, uh, many children get funds at 16, 17, uh, and sometimes 18. So it's hard to keep like that uh, kind of coordination through the phone or through the internet as well. Well, I just have such respect for all the risks that young 
girls take, you know, the the uh, social expectations of what girls are supposed to do or not do, the economic pressures, the expectations of the family's future, uh, do, taking a lot of risks when they engage in those climate strikes. You point to education of girls not only as an equity issue, but also a climate issue. How do those relate? Because they're not often seen as connected. Yeah, um, it's something that um, that I also started to learn. You know, I've, 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 in my activism, I've just been learning and learning and learning and trying to educate myself as well. So I learned that Project Drawdown lists a hundred things that we can do to reduce greenhouse uh, gas emissions. And ranked number five is uh, education of girls and family planning. So Project Drawdown says that when more girls are, you know, educated and more women are empowered, this could be a very powerful, you know, solution that could help us tackle the climate crisis. One, this is a solution that would help reduce on already existing inequalities that women and girls face in society. This is a solution that would help um, uh, build resilience of, you know, many women and girls in, in the society. And this resilience uh, is not something that only benefits the individual. It extends to the family. It extends to the community. It extends to the world at large. Literally, when more girls are educated, when more women are empowered, it gives all of us a lifeline. And it's also a solution that is uh, going to reduce greenhouse gas gas emissions all at the same time. So when I learned that, I, I, I thought that it, it would be, you know, really powerful for people to learn that, you know, education of girls and women empowerment is a powerful tool, you know, um, for is a powerful tool to addressing uh, the climate crisis. Greta has said that, you know, boomers, people in power often say to youth, oh, you know, you give me hope, you're going to inspire us, you're, you're going to solve it. And she pushes it right back on them and says, don't give me that. It's the patronizing, you know, you're in power, you solve it. So I'm curious if when you've encountered these people in power in Europe and the global north, if they you felt that similar sense of kind of, I don't know, patronizing towards you and they acknowledge you as a cute kid and then but they don't really yeah that it's that it stops there have you had that experience yeah i have i have had uh, that experience of you know being called inspiring and being told that young people are going to change the world and uh this just really ends there but they never really take action from the demands that we are asking for and well, a few weeks I made like a TikTok and it, it was basically saying how, you know, some of the leaders, you know, praise young people, but then uh, they continue, uh, let me say, with the extraction of oil. So it was more of, you know, young people are inspiring, but we love our oil. Don't touch it. And young people are going to change uh, the world as long as you don't talk about our natural gas. <laughs> so basically it was uh, a TikTok that many people were relating with, uh, many activists, that leaders are always there to, you know, praise and uh, call young people inspiring and, you know, take pictures with them, but then they never do what the young people are asking for. 
How do you deal with setbacks, those feelings that no one's listening, the change that you want isn't happening, that, that kids' youth might be used as props? And what's your advice to others who feel the same? There's a time when I felt like, you know, the inaction of the leaders was beginning to frustrate and depress me. And I just felt like we continued to strike. Uh, disasters continued to happen. But then the leaders continued to act like, you know, nothing uh, was happening. So in that point, I was really de depressed and uh, I stopped striking and I just couldn't get the strength to go to the streets because I was just so frustrated about the inaction of the leaders. But now when I was able to get through that situation, I just chose to really have hope. And uh, I know that in many spaces, you know, where I may meet leaders, I'm going to expect, you know, those kinds of words of inspiring and, you know, calling me inspiring or saying I'm going to change the world. Yeah. And I think that when those times come, I just really want to say no. You are the ones to change the world. You are the ones to make decisions that will make this planet a better place. Because it's more like when the more you keep saying young people are inspiring, you're carrying all your responsibility and giving it to us. So I just uh, feel like when that happens, I just want to take back the responsibility to the leaders and say, yes, I am a, an activist and this is what I'm asking for. I'm not asking for praises. I'm not asking for pictures. I am asking for justice. Vanessa Nakate is a Ugandan climate justice activist and author of A Bigger Picture, My Fight to Bring a New African Voice to the Climate Crisis. Thank you, Vanessa, for coming on Climate One. Thank you for doing this interview. On this Climate One, we've been taking stock of what happened at this year's International Climate Summit, COP26. Support for today's program was provided in part by the Errol Foundation. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be awkward, difficult, sometimes depressing, but it also can be informative and exciting. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.